Hello and welcome to the Self-Improvement Book Club with Rachel. Today we have special guest Ali Lyons and we are going to be talking about the book Dopamine Nation. Ali works with me at Strideboard Counseling. Thank you so much for being here, Ali. Thank you for having me, Rachel. I'm so excited to be here. Can we start by just you telling uh, the audience a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So um, I will answer this both professionally and personally, kind of who I am beyond just a therapist. Uh, but I will start professionally. I am a licensed clinical social worker. Um, I've been in the role of a therapist for about five years now, but I have been in the field of mental health for about 10 years. Um, and my origin story, so to speak, was probably started in like seventh or eighth grade. Um, I was in the car with my aunt and my two cousins and my sister and my cousins were bickering about something. They were always bickering about something. And I remember I, I mediated the situation or kind of diffused the situation. And my aunt, you know, afterwards said like, wow, Ellie, you would make such a great counselor. And that just kind of sparked something for me. My curiosity was piqued and, you know, kind of really? What? Like, what is that? That's a thing. People are counselors. Um, so then in high school, I went on to take an AP psychology class. And that was just so interesting and fascinating to me. In undergrad, I majored in psychology and I was between kind of two routes. The first one being clinical psychology. I was in an honors clinical psychology program or cohort. And then I was also doing industrial and organizational psychology. I was in a research group. I was a teacher's assistant for my professor. And ultimately, I decided against the IO route because of the research aspect. Um, I do love reading other people's research, but I'll be honest, contributing to the research community is just not the fit for me. So I went clinical psychology route, and then for grad school, I chose MSW, Master of Social Work, as opposed to PC, Professional Counselor. Um, at the time, I thought that would give me more options. Now, later into the field, I realized I, I really could have done either. Um, but I have no regrets. I really love my, my MSW, my Master's of Social Work Education. And then after graduating, I worked for uh, different nonprofit agencies, um, which was a great way to get you know, experience in the field. You really see people from all walks of life. And I've learned so much from that experience. Um, but I have recently started in private practice at Stride Forward Counseling here in September of this year. Personally, <laughs> I will start by saying I'm an animal lover. So I have a cat and a dog growing up. Um, I was, you know, horseback riding was, was my main hobby, loved that. I still try to go riding as often as I can now. Um, I'm a vegan. I love being outdoors, skiing, hiking, the beach, traveling, yoga, you know, outdoor yoga, even better. Um, I love socializing as well. I would say I'm a seven out of 10 extrovert. So I love socializing, but I do also appreciate, you know, some, some quiet nights to myself, kind of cozy fireplace nights in the winter, especially. Uh, I would say that I am a therapist, quote unquote, even in my personal life. And I, I don't mean that to say that I'm providing free therapy to friends and family. No, um, but rather I just, I really love deep conversations and getting to know new people, new cultures, and I love learning new things. So I'm always on this self-help or self-growth journey of just wanting to learn and grow. And I am of the belief that there is like no end point to self-love. It's, it's a forever journey that we are all on and we're always building and expanding on it. Learning is endless and there is always more to learn, which is why I love reading self-help books like Dopamine Nation. 
Me too. I share those same values. So I love that. Yes. It's a never ending journey. I love learning too. And I love new cultures and all of that. Um, I can relate to. So other than self-help books, are there other types of books that you like to read? I do. And I, I'll, again, I'll answer this personally and professionally. So professionally, I do love reading self-help books. And that's also for personal gain, I'll be honest. <laughs> I, I do learn a lot from it. And I will not recommend a book to a client that I have not personally read myself. Um, and when clients tell me about a book that they've read that really helped them, again, I love learning. So I do you know, find myself looking up that book, oftentimes buying it and reading it. But personally, I am a sucker for fiction. <laughs> I love a good fiction novel. I was in a Zoom book club with some friends, you know, during the thick of quarantine. And that was such a lifeline for all of us to have that connection, you know, shared interest. And some of my favorites that we read were um, The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue, Midnight Library. Ooh, I <laughs> yes, that was so good. Really a thinker. I love books that make you think, that make you stop and kind of think. Um, we read A Woman is No Man. Now that one will make you sob. I'm not going to lie. That one is very heavy book. Um, and then I, I love anything that's written by Colleen Hoover. I just, I love her work. And if she's written it, I've read it. <laughs> that's so funny. I just went on a bender with Colleen Hoover. <laughs> so um, I also enjoy her books. Great. Um, so I know today we are focusing on Dopamine Nation. And when, um, you know, we, we talked about what book we wanted to read, this one really sparked my interest. Uh, what did you like about the book? What did you enjoy the most? I really appreciated that Dr. Lemke, that's the author, um, I really appreciated that she humanized or kind of normalized this experience of overconsumption. This is not just a book about addiction or substance use or drugs or alcohol, but rather this book operates under the assumption that we all need to have awareness and accountability for our patterns of consumption and that anything that can give us a dopamine hit has the potential to be overconsumed, even things that are you know, healthy for us, like exercising. And I think the example she used in her book was her own pattern of overconsuming romance novels, which is kind of funny. Here we are doing a book club. <laughs> but in her book, she said she started off reading like the Twilight novels. And then slowly over time, she kind of found herself in this pattern of, you know, overconsuming almost obsessively these romance novels. And she does use a lot of the principles from AA or Alcoholics Anonymous, that 12 step model. You know, the first step being to like admit that a problem exists. And she does use a lot of addiction terminology, like the concept of like planning your next high. So in her case, she realized she was overconsuming or overdoing it with the romance novels because she would be trying to focus on work and all she could think about was, you know, when she could get home and read again, read her next book. And it was affecting her sleep and her focus, her relationship. She said she was isolating herself from others, getting lost in her fantasy novel world, and that she followed the steps, you know, not just the steps of AA, but the steps she outlines in her book and was able to like regain control of that consumption. So I really appreciated, again, that she just humanized this experience. And I think anybody, you know, anyone who's a human who has dopamine receptors can gain something from this book. You, even if you've never had a drop of alcohol in your life, I think you could read this and gain something from it. Yeah. And especially in our day and age where I think we can all relate to like 
maybe being addicted to technology or it becoming a part of our lives where we can't really just put our phone down all day and take a break, especially if, you know, emails at work are tied to it. Um, and, and they've really, you know, made it so the phones do give us those dopamine hits with the notifications and, and other things that pull us back in. Oh, absolutely. And, and she touches on a, that as well, that even things that we need to have, like food, you know, can give us that dopamine hit and can be overconsumed. And that one is like, I know a slippery slope because you can't become abstinent from food. You can't not have food. And even in our day and age, social media, email, like to be totally unplugged, I don't know that that's realistic. So it's not, I don't think the, you know, the, the lesson here is to just stop consuming. It's to, again, be aware and accountable of our consumption. Yeah, and that kind of brings me to the first main point where in an age of compulsive overconsumption, we've all basically become, as she says, pleasure addicts. Now, a couple statistics that I found interesting is she points out from 2008 to 2018, like the, the rate of happiness has, has drastically declined. And could it be because of this pleasure seeking? Absolutely. I mean, this first principle, I think if we could sum up the book in one sentence, it would be this one. You know, in the age of compulsive overconsumption, we've basically all become pleasure addicts. And again, she humanizes that experience of becoming addicted to pleasure, not necessarily drugs or alcohol, but anything that gives us that hit of dopamine. And as humans, we seek pleasure and we avoid pain because obviously pleasure feels better than pain. So in a sense, yes, we have all become pleasure addicts seeking out that euphoric feeling and avoiding the discomfort of pain. And I think that actually ties nicely into her next two principles, which she, you know, kind of nicely bullets at the end of her book. Um, the next, the second one being, you know, our misery stems from trying to avoid being miserable. Mm -hmm. And three, pleasure inevitably leads to pain. Right. Yes. So, I mean, with the pleasure leading to pain, she states like, we can't tolerate discomfort, even at the slightest, like, I don't know. I'm thinking back to the eighties because, <laughs> you know, I don't know. That's like, I feel like before like technology boom, eighties, nineties, you know, you just sit in line and you wouldn't have a phone to look at. You would be bored at times. I remember as a kid being bored, I just, you know, the boredom thing. So I think she does an example with a college student that is always on her phone, walking to class. She's listening to her podcast, which you know, we're doing a podcast, but <laughs> <laughs> so she, she asked the student not to use the phone to kind of get that boredom back in her life. And, um, could it be that we can't handle handle, toler tolerate discomfort anymore? Absolutely. And I, I think that's, you know, kind of goes back to some of the addiction lingo of, of tolerance that we have become really intolerant of pain. We are constantly seeking, pleasure and avoiding pain. And in her book, she uses a diagram that looks a lot like a seesaw or a scale, you know, pain being on one side, pleasure being on the other. And ideally we want our scale to be balanced or that seesaw to be flat, which is you know, homeostasis. 
But again, knowing that we are all pleasure addicts, we often tip our scales to the side of pleasure and eventually we build a, a tolerance to that pleasure. You know, the rest of the plate of cookies will never taste as good as that first bite of cookie. The first time you go to Disney World, it's so magical, it's so wonderful, you feel this intense euphoric feeling and every time you go after that, it's, it's less and less, the thrill has worn off. You know, that shiny new toy is not so shiny anymore. And I'm, I'm sure that Disney World is privy to this, you know, so they're constantly adding new lights and new rides, new characters, new, 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 to give people that rush for the first time, you know, of being there again. And this is a concept you do hear a lot um, in the addiction world, you know, the first high, quote unquote, and that someone with a substance use disorder is continually using in pursuit of that feeling that they had the first time they got high. And eventually, their journey to sobriety, they do have to acknowledge that they will never re-experience that first high, that they're no longer seeking that first high, but rather avoiding the painful feeling of withdrawal and their, their misery. You know, she says misery stems from trying to avoid being miserable. They get stuck in that vicious, vicious cycle of just using to avoid that miserable withdrawal. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's the concept of if one felt good, two would be better. And then our tolerance builds, right? Yes. <laughs> so we have to chase more and more. And it just, she doesn't quite say it like this, but I feel like as humans, we're all chasing feelings, right? We all want to feel a certain way. And that that is where we kind of get into the trouble if we can't maybe accept the painful parts too. Right. Or the and the truth is we need both. Like we need dopamine in order to survive. We need to feel pleasure and pain. And I'm going to use the example of eating. And I think she kind of outlined this in her book as well, which I'll, I'll touch on that example. But we need that cue of feeling hungry. We need that pain of feeling hungry to motivate ourselves to eat. And then we need eating to be pleasurable, to be rewarding to us so that we will eat because if we don't, we will not survive. So we need to have rewards and we need to have pain, um, but obviously we need to be aware of our consumption. And the example she used in her book, this one was very chilling. I think she referenced a movie um, where it was you know, some dystopian society. They were trying to make everyone happy all the time. No one ever felt pain or discomfort. And what ended up happening was everyone died because they didn't feel that pain of hunger. They didn't have that cue to eat. They were just so happy all the time that they never felt the discomfort of, of hunger. That is such a, such a great example. Uh, it's yeah. Like have the cookie, enjoy the cookie, really be with the cookie, but maybe <laughs> don't have six cookies. Right. Right. Everything in, in moderation. And again, this book is not suggesting, you know, I'm going back to alcohol. It's not suggesting that if you drink alcohol, that you will become addicted to alcohol. But again, everything in moderation. You can have your one or two drinks and say, all right, that's enough. And I, I don't need to continue from there. Now, some people do struggle with that and they want they want that high. They want that dopamine. They want more and more and more and more. more. Yeah, and that leads to the next po point where if you realize you're in this, I need more, more, more phase. That's when she suggests like abstinence leads to insight. Right? Are you covering up something else? Is, is something else going on? So if you realize you're in a pattern of overconsumption where you're never satisfied and you have that mindset 
of I want more, more, more. She gives an example of a, a teenage girl that smokes weed daily to cope with her anxiety. And she talks the girl into quitting smoking weed for a month. So at the end of the month, the, the girl gets clarity that her anxiety, the weed was causing her anxiety. So she's saying that, you know, abstinence can lead to more insight and also it will rebalance the brain. Absolutely. And that example she gave with the teenage girl, like that one was really powerful, you know, for this girl to realize after 30 days, she had, you know, she was abstinent, she was not using weed anymore and realized that it actually never was anxiety. It was withdrawal from the weed and this kind of daily cycle of, you know, getting high at night to kind of numb out from the pain, escape the stress. And then the next day she has to go to school. So she can't be high at school and she's anxious all day long. Um, you know, and, and feeling that discomfort and again, planning her next high, waiting till she can get home to get high again and then numb out from that pain and that anxiety she had all day long and then cue the cycle. And this one, this principle, abstinence leads to insight, made me think of the gym. I'm going to use a, a personal example here, one that I'm okay. guilty of, right? I'm a flawed human. I'll admit that. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I, I think we often notice the impact something had on us after we've stopped doing it for a while. Yes. Yes. And I am guilty of this hot and cold, this on and off with the gym. You know, I'm really motivated and I'm going to the gym three, four times a week and it's feels really good. It helps with my stress. I sleep better. I'm more focused. And then, you know, life gets in the way. Maybe the holidays are coming up. It disrupts your daily routine. You could say it's making excuses, but somewhere along the line, I kind of fall out of that pattern and it's, it's not overnight. You know, you're going less and less and less. And the next thing you know, you know, I'm, I'm not going to the gym at all. And it kind of dawns on me one day, like, man, I'm, I'm really stressed and I'm not sleeping as well. And I'm tired. I feel sluggish. I don't feel as focused. And that to me is like an aha moment that, oh, the gym was helping. That That's why I was going to the gym and exercising regularly because it, it really was helping. And then cue the cycle. I'm motivated again. I go back and you know, get, get stuck yeah. in that cycle again. It's a great example. Yeah. And like, what if it went the other way where you started to get addicted to exercise, which, uh, you know, at first made you feel good, but why, why not make it like more and more and more? I remember, and this isn't in the book, but I read an article about ultra runners and there was some link to being abused as children and the ultra runners because they were used to that extreme pain and they were recreating it by, you know, running for hours and hours and hours. So yeah, I think anything good, if it's over consumed too much can also be something that gets out of control or or ends up, you know, not, not being good for us. Right. Absolutely. Everything is in moderation, even the things that are good for us, you know, that runner's high is real. I I enjoy running. I enjoy exercising and it feels really good. But at some point, my body will not be able to run anymore. There will be a physical consequence. I will have joint pain or I'll be tired. I'll be hungry. I'll I'll have to stop running at some point. I have to keep it in in moderation. So yes, even the things that are good for us can be overconsumed and that we have to, again, be aware and accountable of our consumption patterns. 
Yeah. And I think she, the last thing about this point that I, I want to bring up is she said 20% of patients don't improve after abstinence. And that is something where she feels like more is going on, maybe some kind of mental health diagnosis or something deeper is going on that, that needs to have some sort of attention. So that in itself could be the insight that more is going on that you need to dig into. Absolutely. And I, I do think, you know, from working with clients in the past, um, when it comes to co-occurring disorders, it's really hard to parcel out or to treat. Is this anxiety or is this cannabis? And if they can be, you know, abstinent for 30 days or refrain from that use for 30 days is what she says is kind of the minimum for your body to detox and expel, you know, the, the cannabis, um, what does that mean then for the anxiety? And in the case of the teenage girl, she actually never had anxiety, it was withdrawal. But for others, yes, they, they do have anxiety. And without the cannabis, then you know we can treat the anxiety. What does that look like on its own? So that this is not to discredit someone who has a mental health condition. You know, this is more again the consumption. And if we can remove that that consumption or remove that that drug, what are we left with? Yeah. And that's obviously where the insight comes from. So another point, another main topic is tipping our scales towards pain can ultimately lead to pleasure. What did you think about this section of the book? So this one was probably the hardest for me to wrap my head around. And, and conceptually, I understood it. And the examples that she gave, you know, really helped me to understand it. So she said, you know, like the ice plunge bath to get that euphoric feeling that people talk about or like intermittent fasting to get health benefits that people experience. But when I was reading this section, I was thinking about some clients that I've worked with in the past who would self-harm um, to replace their pain. You know, they would tell me that they, it would help them to replace any physical pain, excuse me, emotional pain with physical pain and that it would tip their scales back to pleasure, that they felt better after self-harming. And obviously that does not feel good. I mean, we don't want to promote people self-harming or injuring themselves or putting themselves in a dangerous position to feel pleasure. So I'm, I'm really curious if you had a similar thought or similar concern when you read this section about. Yes, I did. Well, yeah. <laughs> when they explained the cold bath and the cold showers, first of all, <laughs> I was like, oh, that sounds so horrible. Yes. Like, but then I, I don't know. She said something like an hour of cold water ups your dopamine by 200 and some percent. And I was like, first wow. of all, I can't imagine being in a cold bath for an hour. That's just, I don't know. You just probably go numb. But yeah, I, I actually went exactly where you went with self-harm. I thought about self-harm. I thought about those clients that I've had that, that do kind of get that relief from that. And it, and I had the same feeling like, is yeah, you don't want to promote that, but you also kind of like understand it in a different way, mm -hmm. but we can't, you know, we can't promote it. Absolutely not. <laughs> so I think I struggled too on, um, yes, that, that point particularly, but things like, I guess there's healthier ways, right? Like they, they say acupuncture is an example of pain leading to pleasure, like those little needle points. So maybe it's more about getting people to experience the pain in a healthier, safer way. Mm -hmm. And in the case of self-harming, um, I turn back to a principle from 
DBT, Dialectical and Behavioral Therapy, um, following the CARES model. And CARES is an acronym. It stands for one, communicate alternatively, two, release endorphins, and then three, self-soothe. So these are, um, in a sense, replacement behaviors, other ways to you know, seek that pleasure, avoid that pain. Communicating alternatively might be like journaling or drawing or talking to someone about it. Releasing endorphins would be exercising, moving your body in some kind of way. And then self-soothing would be, you know, a warm bath or a blanket, rocking yourself, other ways that are less dangerous, less harmful to you, that still will alleviate the pain and give you that feeling of pleasure. Great advice. Great advice. So the section about telling the truth will set us free. <laughs> uh, I also had mixed feelings about this. <laughs> because, I mean, she talks about radical honesty, but I think all of us, you know, tell little lies here and there. Like if our best friend says, how does this outfit look? And we don't want to hurt their feelings. Like, you know, that kind of... Uh, little lies. I think we all do once in a while. Um, but she, you know, she makes some good points. Um, in a way, when, when we tell the truth, we expose our shortcomings. She talks about vulnerability and, you know, putting our faults out there so that people can, can, you know, make us, make us feel more human. So. Yes. So this principle really resonated with me. And I, I actually shared that similar feeling with you, Rachel, when I first was reading it, I was saying, what radical honesty? Like, that sounds mean to tell your best friend that doesn't look good on you. Like, that's hurtful. But the more I read, it actually really resonated with me. You know, the concept of radical honesty, not just in the sense of admitting that you have a problem, but that radical honesty or vulnerability leads to deeper and more genuine human connection. We humans are social creatures. We thrive on our sense of community and belongingness, and we know what happens to people in solitary confinement. So much so that I'm willing to bet that if a judge gave you the choice between a life sentence of solitary confinement or the death sentence, I am willing to bet most people would pick the death sentence because we do not want to experience those feelings of isolation, loneliness. We are social creatures. Nobody would want solitary confinement for the rest of their lives. And because of that, most of us humans have this deeply rooted fear of rejection and abandonment. That fear often leads to us putting up walls and trying to protect ourselves. You know, this fear that if we're vulnerable and if we're honest with each other, that other people will no longer accept us and we'll be shamed and shunned from our tribe. And that we'll have to endure that deeply painful feeling of loneliness and isolation. And Dr. Lemke really challenges this fear by saying that actually the opposite is true. If we are radically honest with ourselves and with others, if we allow ourselves to push past that discomfort of vulnerability, we actually develop deeper and more meaningful connections with others. And we know this is true because when someone is honest and vulnerable with us, we feel safe being open and honest with them in return. And we realize we are actually more alike than we are different. And that right there opens the door to forming connection. Well said, that was beautifully said. Um, yes, that that is exactly what the author was trying to get across. And I, 
I am very familiar with the concept of radical acceptance. So I just kind of switched this in my brain to like radical honesty. And, it, you know, it kind of more resonated with me to just be totally, totally honest all the time, especially with our most important relationships. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's hard to do. It's hard to be radically honest. It feels uncomfortable. It feels risky. But this is something I talk to clients a lot about, that it is worth it. You do, if you can sit with that discomfort, that distress tolerance, being open and vulnerable, that actually you do form a deeper connection. And that is very pleasurable. And that's very rewarding to have that deep connection. We draw some of our deepest meaning in life, right? What is the meaning of life? We draw some of our, our deepest meaning from our relationships and our very intimate ones, you know, romantic relationships, but also friends, family, again, our inner circle. Yeah. And the one thing I would say is start doing this with the people that are safest to you. Right. Um, uh, yeah. To build that, that muscle up to be able to do it more and more and more. Right. So I think one reason why people lie or don't tell the truth is the way people react to them. Mm -hmm. So if you do this radical honesty with the people that are most, that you feel most safe with, I think that will build that muscle to be able to do it more and more with, with others. Um, so love this concept. I also, you know, her, her next one about um, pro-social shame. Shame is always a topic for me uh, that I, I love to learn more about, but her take on pro-social shame and giving us a dose of humility that we need was this was my favorite part of the book <laughs> um, because I I don't like shaming, but the way she explained it, that it can actually be a, a thing that helps us was, was helpful for me as like, instead of shaming people, like not talking to them or just throwing them out of the group that she encourages people to make apologies to feel compassion for others to let them make their mistakes but understand they're working on themselves and trying to to make up for that mistake and if they do that they can come back into the tribe that to me feels so much better than just kicking someone out and just not talking to them ever again but i know that doesn't always happen in a perfect world what did you think about this part I also really liked this section. And of course, when you first read it, you know, pro-social shame, like what? That sounds painful. That sounds bad. We, it's mean. We should not shame other people. But I think you hit the nail on the head that again, if we're going to humanize this experience, that we are flawed creatures, we are imperfect humans, we make mistakes. Even machines make mistakes. Have you ever been to a self-checkout at the grocery store? <laughs> um, but if we can accept that, yes, we as humans, we make mistakes, we are imperfect, but that mistakes are forgivable, that we can right our wrongs, we can make amends, we can humble ourselves enough to apologize and admit that I was wrong, take ownership of that, make a commitment to the person, what you're going to do different in the future, to not repeat this same mistake, and to ask for their forgiveness. And that, I wouldn't say that's shameful, that's, again, a very forgivable, you know, mistake, that we, we do make mistakes, but we can be forgiven pharmacies we can write our wrongs yeah and I also honor the choice of people if if the mistake's too bad and they don't want to be in your life in the same way um 
that that's a different story than I think what feels so isolating to us as humans, like everyone throwing us out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess just think about the worst thing you've ever done if it was broadcasted everywhere and the whole mm-hmm. world kind of wrote you off and as this evil villain, you know, we love good stories with the villain and the, you know, the good guy. But I think TV now it's more, you know, people have a lot of dimensions and it's not like everyone's all good or all bad, but um, this, this kind of aspect of, you know, we don't want to be totally feeling alone. Like you explained in that isolation, that that would be worse than the death penalty. Um, So that's kind of how I guess I took it. Mm -hmm. And she did reference cancel culture and how like, that's, that's not what we want to encourage or promote. That's not pro-social shame is canceling quote unquote, somebody like banishing them from the tribe, but rather that they should feel the natural consequences of their actions, that you should feel the discomfort of like guilt and remorse for your mistakes. And again, try to right your wrongs. And, and in her book, she really did, you know, this section was really heavy on AA and some of those principles, the 12 step, um, that part of why AA is so rigid and strict in their rules that if you relapse, you have to restart your sobriety clock. You have to rework the steps. You have to admit in front of everybody that you relapsed, And you have to do that in order to, again, regain that awareness, that accountability, um, that dose of humility. And she also mentioned that it, you know, why AA is so successful is because there is that pro-social shame. It weeds out what she said, the freeloaders, you know, the people that just get up there and they glamorize their old drinking stories. And that's very triggering to everyone else who is committed to their sobriety. You know, you need that pro-social shame to have that awareness and that accountability. Yeah. And that just goes back to being vulnerable and real, right? Like the people that do it right in AA admit their mistakes, take responsibility, apologize where they need to make amends where they need to as, as, as much as they can. Um, That is, I think the human part of it is being honest. And again, the radical honesty of I really messed up and I want to change and I don't want to do this again because those consequences did hurt. And I do see where I hurt others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I thought this was an excellent book. I, I would recommend it for anyone. And I just loved all the examples and I don't, we didn't touch on so much of it, but <laughs> you don't have that much time. Right. Um, So, you know, I guess when we think about maybe some quotes that hit us, is there anything particularly like quotes that you really enjoyed? Yes, there was one in particular was the last principle that she lists in the back of the book. Um, In quotes, radical honesty promotes awareness, enhances intimacy and fosters a plenty mindset. And it's that last point, fosters a plenty mindset. Um, That one stood out to me. It really reminded me of a mantra or an affirmation that I often tell myself and I use in my clinical practice. Um, The mantra is, I do enough, I have enough, I am enough. Love that. Do it again. Yes. (laughs) I do enough, I have enough, I am enough. 
in this age of overconsumption, we are all guilty, all of us, of seeking more and more dopamine. And when we can tune back into our present moment, you know, very grounded in a lot of mindfulness practices, tune back into the present moment, and we really learn to foster a plenty mindset that no, I actually don't need more. I do have enough. And even if I got more, it still wouldn't be enough. And that's kind of, again, the addiction talk, tolerance. There's a principle in AA that one drink is too many and a thousand is not enough. And so we want to foster a plenty mindset that I do enough, I have enough, and I am enough. Well said. And that that is... I think if we all adopted that, it would be a beautiful world where we felt like we were all enough um, and we were doing enough and we had enough. So that's a good way to end this. And Allie, thank you so much for being on. This was so, so fun to talk to you about this book. Thank you for having me, Rachel. This this was very, um, this is very fun, exciting. I've been really excited leading up to this. Again, I, I love learning and I love talking to other people uh, about this book. This is definitely one I would recommend to other therapists, clients. Um, if you are a human and you have dopamine receptors, you will gain something from this book. So everyone, yeah. <laughs> yes, so everyone. <laughs> All right, thank you so much. And everyone out there, have a great day.